Welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. This week, we'll be hearing from a remarkable man. Pavlo Kazan is an environmental scientist from the Dnipro region of eastern Ukraine. But he's also a reserve officer, a lieutenant colonel who was in the thick of the current conflict, commanding C4 operations. That is command, control, communications and computer activities. Well, that's uh, obviously a very important area of the conflict. And Pavlo's received multiple decorations for his service. He's in a great position to provide some real insights into what's going on as Ukraine gears up to start clawing back some of the territory it's lost to Russia. So this is what he had to say when Saul and I spoke to him at Dnipro, where he was enjoying a few days' leave from the front line. What were you doing in civilian life before the war broke out in 2014? Uh, My civilian life was mostly connected with the environment. Being an environmental engineer, uh, I organized, uh, I've been organizing many different projects. Uh, I also doing some environmental science on renewable energy, sustainable development, and some other environmental projects, and also uh, work in, in a science. And uh, I'm an electrical engineer by training uh, with a PhD in statistics, so I uh, also uh, use my time for science. So I, I didn't expect that uh, I will go to, to the war. No. Okay. So in 2014, what was your military role uh, when the war began, or at least when you got involved in it? Uh, When the war began, I came to the war in June of 2014. And uh, because I I graduated from the university, uh, I had uh, officer's rank. I was lieutenant. And uh, I came to the war as an expert on communications, as a signal corps officer. And my first job there was uh, installing of uh, radio communications. We we have been installing um, encrypted uh, digital radio for uh, Ukrainian army because uh, at the beginning of the war, our army was uh, in the very, very poor conditions and uh, it was a really, very, really big problem that uh, we used the old-fashioned analog radio. And uh, it caused a lot of problems because our enemies have been listening to our voices. And that is why we needed to, to organize this encrypted uh, digital communication. Wait, have you been demobilized at any time? Were you, did you go back to civilian life, Colonel, or have you been in uniform? Yes. You, you did. I was in the war in 2014 uh, till 2015. Then I served from 2017 uh, and to 2020. And uh, I, I demobilized in 2020 as a commander of C4ISR group in uh, anti-terroristic operation and joint forces operation. And I didn't expect that I will come back to army. Yeah, and so and then then I mobilized in the in in February on the day after the big invasion. Yeah. I I was in Kiev. I came to Dnipro back home, and on the next day I came to to mobilization point, and I've been mobilized to be a, a reserve major. So it was my duty, and it was 
no any any discussion if, if i need to be mobilized and uh, we communicated with my friends and uh, we mobilized with my very close friend max and uh, joined the army again okay and could you tell us a little bit about your role uh, and how it's changed over the last few months if it has changed uh, my role uh, is uh, i'm c4 isr group commander and i have unit uh, which doing uh, different kind of um, communication it's the part of c4 means command control computing communications and also the different part of intelligence is intelligence civilians and reconnaissance and uh, we using uavs for our work we using uh, different tools uh, for uh, electronic warfare and to support to have this electronic support to our UAV and this kind of intelligence and we using also uh, different uh, different equipment uh, high technological equipment for doing investigation and to optimize uh, the army management the different programs who optimizing army management and who give us the uh, clear and online picture on the front line Yeah. If I understand this correctly, Colonel, you're doing two things, really. You're maximizing your own communication security, but you're also breaking in to Russian communications and building up a rich intelligence picture of what they're up to. Is that correct? Yes, yes, you're right. And also, uh, our role is the correction of artillery fire, because uh, we have very good uh, high technological UAVs, and uh, one of my units doing this uh, uh, correction of artillery fire. So you're basically artillery spotting using uh, high-tech devices to actually map the fall of fire. Is, is that it? And if that's so, how, how do you actually do that? How do you actually monitor where the shells are falling? We're using UAVs. Uh, we have good can, copters. Can you explain uh, what that is for our listeners? who probably uh, UAVs is the drones. Yeah. It's the planes without pilot. And, yes, uh, unmanned aerial, uh, unmanned unmanned, aerial yes, 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 yes. And uh, we're using them on the front line, going to the territory which controlled uh, by our enemies, Ukrainian territory, but unfortunately controlled by our enemies. And uh, we, we are investigating uh, their equipment and we co- communicate and we are in, in close collaboration with artillery units and we're making this uh, uh, correction of artillery fire. We, this is very, very effective for them because we, we need these eyes uh, in the sky. Uh, uh, even if they have very precise instruments, they, they need to correct this fire and they, they need to understand if they touch it. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been hearing a lot about the importance of artillery fire in this uh, conflict, obviously on both sides. Uh, we've also been reading and, and have seen a lot of uh, reports about how the West is providing increasingly sophisticated e- equipment to Ukraine. How much difference has that made to the war effort? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, it's really very big support with artillery tools, and it's really changed uh, the scenario of this war. Uh, because first of all, it's triple uh, seven um, long range artillery. Yeah. Yeah, long-range artillery, 155 millimeter, I think, is it? Or Yes, 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 you're right. And uh, this uh, 777 cannons uh, are really very effective 
Uh, the only problem with this equipment that we didn't receive uh, computers for them. So uh, up to now, uh, our colleagues uh, regulate and tune the, these cannons uh, with help of, uh, it's like a hand uh, regulators. Uh, is, is that on the way? Is, is, is the uh, computer back up on the way now, the software coming for you to, to make it even uh, more? We do all, but I don't know exactly. So yeah. this is this is the only problem. But for, for other tools, it, it is really very good uh, artillery. And uh, our artillery units, our officers and soldiers, very quickly trained. And they using them very, very good. And um, I very much appreciate it to them because uh, we have very good collaboration. And yeah. also this uh, uh, other units like Susanna and uh, some units with the same caliber, they're also very good. And uh, this is what we need. We need much more. It sounds to me as if you've got that in terms of the actual quality of the soldiers on the Ukrainian side, you've got highly skilled, highly trained people to draw on whose expertise can be applied in a military way in a, in a, whereas the Russians perhaps have not got that degree of competence. Would you say that was a fair assessment? Yes, yes. We've also heard a fair bit about the multiple rocket uh, systems that have been coming over to Ukraine, the HIMARS, um, ATA CMS uh, version of the uh, rocket, which can apparently fire up to 300 kilometers. This sounds to us on the sidelines to be a real big game changer for Ukrainian capability. Uh, Talking about HIMARS, it's really a very huge tool. And uh, again, we need many more of HIMARS. This is only I, I can say because this is for now, this is the I think this is the, the best tool, which artillery tool, what we have in the war. And uh, what we can see, they, they targeted very precise and uh, very effective. We have as many as uh, Heimers. I think uh, we will very much change this scenario of the war. We're reading about a lot of strikes quite deep into Russian territory, or at least Russian-held territory, I should say, Colonel, um, in particular in the Crimea. Um, There's a lot of speculation in the West as to what is causing those strikes. Is it special forces? Is it partisans? Is it long-range rocket fire? Can you give us any insight into uh, what might be doing that? Uh, We we don't know exactly, of course, (laughs) but... uh... Uh, of course, uh, our armed forces uh, working on the very high level of uh, professionalism and sometimes it's rockets, sometimes it's uh, some special operations on the territories which is now uh, currently controlled by Russians. And uh, of course, uh, uh, this news very much inspire us uh, because uh, we we would like to release our territories as soon as possible, but uh, we understand that uh, our enemy Russians they have uh, a lot of equipment, a lot of uh, of weapon, and um, that is why we we even didn't don't know how much capacity they have. Even I I think that the intelligence of NATO doesn't know uh, how many cannons or tanks or aircrafts uh, Russians have. But uh, I do believe that uh, the high level of technology and uh, our collaboration with uh, NATO uh, give us uh, this victory as soon as possible. 
we're reading uh, a, a lot of reports, and it's coming out from the Ukrainian government that there might be uh, a big counteroffensive, possibly in the Kherson area, uh, in the immediate future. Is that the sort of uh, indication you're getting? Um, okay, we have the three main directions: is it's a Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Kharkiv, and of course. Um, it is very difficult to say what direction is most important for Ukraine because it's the old territories of Ukraine and we need to release them. Uh, at the same time, we understand that the, the territory of Kherson area is the territory, the sea territory. And this is an important strategic area for Russians because uh, they plans to uh, invade this territory and up to Odessa to, to invade the old territory close to the sea. Uh, because of that, of course, we need to look on Kherson direction as the very important priority. And um, at the same time, Russians now uh, increasing their forces on Kherson territory. And uh, what we can see that they increasing um, electronic warfare forces. And this is very, uh, very bright indicator that they increase in other forces. Like, for example, in, uh, on Kharkiv direction is a very difficult direction uh, concerning this uh, electronic warfare. That is why, of course, uh, yes, I also looked on media and uh, uh, our government says about this uh, Ukrainian activity on this uh, on this direction, but um, we will see. I, I do believe that it's possible, but when and how, um, I don't know. I can see from your biography, Colonel, that you have been uh, decorated a number of times. You've been honoured with uh, uh, various awards, including the Order of Merit Third Class, the Joint Forces Cross First Class, and the Armed Forces Badge of Honour. Can you tell us uh, what those awards were for? Uh, it was our just job, just our job on the war. This is uh, what what we have to do. But because uh, and of course, this is the the teamwork. Yeah. Okay, you're being very modest, I can see. But um, yeah, like any good commander, you're sharing the credit around to your whole uh, whole team. Um, do you believe, uh, Colonel, that Ukraine will eventually win the war in the sense that it will recover all its lost territory? Uh, and if so, when might that happen? Of course, we we do believe that we win war. Otherwise, uh, it is it is impossible to to fight. And uh, I believe that this is the only way for us, and this is the only way for us as the civilized society, because this war is not just a war between Russia and Ukraine. And I and I don't like to to say that Russian Ukrainian war because this this is Russian war on Ukrainian territory. And this Russian war against all countries, all European countries, all civilized uh, world. And uh, that is why it is really pivotal moment of, of the democracy as at all, because uh, it is very good test for democracy. It is very good indicator uh, which countries, which politicians, what people and how people doing as a response on this invasion, as a response on invasion of Ukraine, but in fact is an invasion of uh, the, the human lives, the 
world system which was organized since uh, second world war uh, and destroying territories this destroying destroying everything killing people and that is why i believe that this is the only way to win and to, to win uh, in in close collaboration uh, with our partners from other countries and um, when we win it's uh, it's a very good question uh, i think this the this active phase of the war uh, will be during the year i guess when uh, we have this point of a very fast changing scenario uh, i think when russia uh, and russian government uh, will understand that we will win and uh, will try to to go to some negotiations but uh, i think it's uh, no negotiations with terrorists and uh, russia now is terroristic country and it's also important to say that uh, this is not only responsibility of putin or russian government this is also responsibility of uh, russian wider public of russian citizens and that is why it is important to send messages to citizens like some countries says that uh, russian uh, russian citizens uh, will not uh, come or they they proposed to to close the european union for them and uh, of course it's it's very important to send messages to russian people because they are responsible for this war on that subject uh, colonel you're jewish what does it feel like to yeah. be to be told that uh you are part of a nazi regime it must be very very strange to have this uh, propaganda uh, directed at, at, at well you you personally uh of course uh you know uh, i'm from jewish family and uh, my grandfather boris was uh, officer on the second world war and another grandfather gregory was officer during second world war so and uh, for my family it's absolutely normal that uh, myself came to the war i have oldest son who also now in a, in the army and um, talking about this propaganda it's uh, of course uh, the the russian propaganda it's really huge and the um, you know that uh, they have the very huge and very long tradition of propaganda in so in Russia and Soviet Union and um, they very very professional they very high level in this uh, uh, brutal and black propaganda um, and that is why um, it's uh, the, this propaganda could be about everything and also this part of propaganda about nationalism or, or nazism or, or fascism or something else uh, this is i think this is because uh, they make this propaganda uh, as um, stupid as possible as uh, unbelievable as possible as um, and uh, because of uh, these tools they try to manage uh, Uh, and to influence on, on on the brains of people and unfortunately this propaganda works and uh, uh, not only in ukraine uh, in different countries because uh, russia has uh, very big resources very huge media, media 
uh, resources and not only media, but also networks, peoples, politicians, organizations. And uh, that is why it's also very important for uh, our Western society to, to respond to this propaganda and to respond professionally, to respond on different levels, not only on political levels, level, but uh, this propaganda also uh, they use in, in different sphere of life, in music, in, in literature, uh, in non-governmental, in, in public activity. And that is why it is important to define what propaganda is and if it is propaganda against Ukrainians or, or other nations. And uh, to stop this propaganda, to, to filter it. You're a scientist. Can you tell us what are the environmental consequences uh, of the ongoing war, but particularly with regard to the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power station? This is a very important question, especially for me, uh, because uh, I am an organizer and creator of environmental monitoring system for my region. And um, uh, we investigated a lot on the consequences of the war. And uh, especially now, after the big invasion uh, to Ukraine, uh, we already have uh, very bad consequences on landscapes. Uh, and we have also a lot of chemicals, the, the chemical influ influence on our lands. But the most dangerous, what could be, is the NPP, Zaporizhia NPP, nuclear power plant. And um, uh, this is a really hot spot of uh, Ukrainian war. And it is very important to defend it, to keep, keep it, because uh, otherwise it will be the hugest and uh, even impossible consequences, uh, not only for Ukraine, but for Europe as all. Well. And um, I think uh, we will need a lot of resources and a lot of support to clean our territory and even to analyze about, uh, these consequences, to monitor these consequences. Because uh, uh, we hadn't such a huge war for a very long time on, on our territories. And we, we, we need to optimize a lot of uh, scientific resources to analyze it. But uh, U Ukraine, before the war, Ukraine has uh, many environmental challenges. And having this uh, heavy industry, metallurgical, cocoa and chemical industries and machinery, uh, we have a lot of pollution, the air pollution, water pollution. And um, this is what we have been investigating during a very long time. And um, after the war, uh, it will be a lot of investigation, I guess. You've spoken very um, eloquently, Colonel, about the, the consequences of the war for Europe uh, as a whole and not just Ukraine. Um, do you have a message for those uh, listeners in the West who might argue, as some we suspect will, as winter uh, approaches and, and the high gas and electricity prices mean that everyone is, is feeling a bit of pain, uh, nothing, of course, compared to what's going on in Ukraine. Do you have any message for those people who would suggest that it's better to end this war sooner rather than later by a negotiated peace that would not uh, result in, in our estimation and in yours in a victory for Ukraine? 
yes, uh, sure, I have a message. And first of all, we need to understand that this war, not just against Ukrainians. And this war, not just the war on East Ukraine. This is the very important to understand for European people that we are the, the one society and uh, the price of this, uh, of this war and the price of, of, of this uh, fuel or electricity, human lives, and how many children, women, uh, people, soldiers been killed by Russia in Ukraine. And how many homes been destroyed? Some cities like Mariupol completely destroyed by Russia. Uh, we have partly destroyed uh, Kharkiv uh, and, and other cities. And this is important that it's, it's of course, I believe it's difficult to understand maybe for people living uh, somewhere in Western Europe, but it's necessary to look on these pictures, to look on video and to understand that uh, we will pay very high price and the price will be much more higher if they will not win and if we will go on, on some uh, like peaceful negotiations. Because the enemy, Russia, is the enemy of the world. Russia is the enemy of civilized world, of civilized system, what we have now. And, uh, of course, Western, Western society have enough resources. And it is very important to cover these resources, to, to use these resources uh, for, the, for the victory. Because this is a milestone of, of democracy. And now we will test if we can protect democracy, if we can protect human lives, rule of law, social justice. But otherwise, we don't need our constitutions and international law and all, all rules which we developed since the uh, Second World War. Well, that was an incredibly moving and revealing interview. We'll be back in a few minutes after the break to unpick some of the Colonel's many fascinating points. Talk to you then. Welcome back. Well, we promised when we launched this podcast to bring voices and expertise from the front line, and Colonel Kazan has certainly provided us with that. What struck me immediately, Saul, uh, was his confidence. So despite what a lot of commentators are saying, including our guest last week, Professor Orlando Figes, who's quite pessimistic about the outcome, uh, he believes that war, the war can and will be won in the sense of driving uh, all Russian forces from occupied territory, but provided that Ukraine gets the help it needs from the West. Yes, uh, he did say that. He, he made the point that what would be the reason, what would be the motivation for Ukrainians like him fighting, for civilians turned soldiers like him fighting, uh, if they didn't believe uh, in ultimate victory. And he made it clear, I thought, uh, particularly towards the end, in the most eloquent uh, way, just what is at stake here. Not just a war between Russia and Ukraine, but a war between Russia and the civilised world that is being fought on Ukrainian territory. Almost a proxy war that we all should have an interest in. Yeah, yeah, I think that was very, he put that very 
succinctly and well. And, you know, that underpins the view that he expressed that there can't be a negotiated settlement. Any Any negotiation would be effectively a victory for Putin and for Russia. And then we've got a kind of parallel with the with the Second World War, where, you know, it was decided at the summit at Casablanca that the the outcome had to be uh, absolute, you know, that, that there was the, the, the terms were unconditional surrender, no negotiating with Hitler and his regime, uh, no compromises, no trade offs, nothing, it, it had to end in utter defeat. Now, clearly, that's not the view uh, among the, the NATO powers. Uh, so you know that that's a, that's a huge kind of um, mismatch between uh, Western war aims, Allied war aims, and Ukrainian war aims. Yeah, he he made the point very strongly. I thought that, of course, if you don't uh, show Russia the error of his ways, in other words, it has to lose this war. It has to feel the pain of this type of aggression. Then, of course, it can be repeated. Um, he feels that uh, Ukraine's ultimate victory is vital. Uh, and at least the indications we're getting, not just from him, but of course from the statements from uh, right up to the top of government, President Zelensky, is that there aren't any signs of internal dissent from this, that the Ukrainian people, or at least the uh, pro-government uh, Ukrainians, are absolutely in line and determined to keep going until they've got back what they say is rightfully theirs. And that's all the territory that was Ukrainian uh, before 2014. Yeah, that, I think that sort of really uh, holds President Zelensky and his government to that pledge. I think having convinced the people that that is what they should be aiming at, I think it'd be very, very hard for for him and his government to deviate from that line now. So they're set on a on a course um, which is, you know, it's despite the optimism, more less engaged people like Fijas last week. Uh, are pointing out all the difficulties in actually achieving in achieving that end. Um, something else that struck me in what he said was another, again another parallel with World War Two. Uh, he he was um, pretty explicit about holding the whole Russian people responsible for what's going, and not just the Putin reg- regime. Just as the Germans at large were held responsible for Nazism, and that that uh, enabled the British war leadership uh, to sell the bombing of German cities, the strategic bombing campaign, as morally defensible, uh, citing, I mean, the fiction was created that they were aiming at military targets, at German war industry, etc. But I think pretty soon everyone could guess what the what the reality was. But I was struck, uh, you know, what, what we're really struggling to do, Saul, uh, everyone, that is, uh, is to find out what's going on in the mind of your ordinary Russian. But... I did see something, a fascinating clip of an old woman. We were always, we, we know a bit about what, you know, the intelligentsia and Petersburg and, and Moscow might be thinking or not thinking. But what we don't know is what the great mass of the population are thinking. Got a, we got a little insight of that in a clip that was uh, aired last week of an old w- woman in an unnamed village somewhere in Russia, uh, in sort of deep rural Russia. And it, it could have come straight out of a Turgenev novel, the house, wooden houses, with this sort of wonderful, simple ornamentation, chickens running around. Now, she spoke simply but eloquently again about uh, what was going on. And she didn't blame Putin for the war, but but the West, not the Ukrainians, but the the West, who she said were always grinding us under their heels. Uh, But nonetheless, she wasn't happy about the war. And she kept shaking her head as she sort of 
talked about all the young men, the husbands and sons of the village and surrounding villages who were disappearing to go off and fight this war. Yes, and of course, so powerful is Russian propaganda, particularly control of state television, that uh, even people in these far-flung villages are getting fed a line that they will probably only uh, begin to uh, roll back from Patrick, when they see the actual evidence of the war, the effect it's going to have, these young men either not coming back or coming back in body bags. So we'll we'll have to wait and see the extent to which Russian um, public opinion is will gradually change as the effects of the war uh, begin to be felt by the whole population. Um, I was fascinated. One particular area where we we both felt the colonel was less forthcoming was on the progress of the much heralded big push the counter-offensive. And of course, it was quite understandable when he spoke to us uh, that he didn't want to give the game away. Um, it took me back to some of our uh, Falklands podcast, Patrick, where, of course, uh, the press were giving out information that was actually of British attacks. It was very useful to the Argentinians. So he was very careful not to do that. And yet he must have known, given his uh, position of responsibility, that actually what's now happened this week was literally about to begin within a few hours, actually, of us speaking to him. And that, of course, is uh, is the push, particularly around the Kherson, uh, the city of Kherson area. Yeah. Um, on that, uh, going back to the Falklands thing, of course, uh, when the Argentinians heard on the BBC that the uh, Paras were about to attack Goose Green, they automatically assumed it was disinformation. So maybe it sort of cuts both ways. But but there we are. One thing he did sort of say was that you know clearly the focus is on Kherson for the reason that uh, it has immense strategic value to the Russian war aim of occupying the entire Black Sea coast down to. Odessa. Now, something clearly, you know, something has started, uh, and there was a bit of a kind of, you know, announcement that, that, uh, okay, um, what we've been predicting for so long is now underway. Uh, a spokesman in the Kherson area, Ukrainian government spokesman called Sergei Klan, uh, said that the, what he called the deoccupation of the Kherson area had begun, starting with full scale, full scale artillery barrages of the entire Kherson area. And he mentioned uh, that uh, troops were fo- falling back, not Russian army troops per se, but Ukrainian separate u- separatist units that have been fighting alongside them. Yeah, it's a very fast-moving situation. I mean, we know that the preparation was uh, quite long and methodical for this, using their new long-range artillery. Uh, the Ukrainians were destroying bridges at the back of these Russian and Russian separatist uh, troops, that is the uh, Dnipro River. Uh, and of course, this means in effect, they're cut off from supplies, from resupply, uh, in particular in the city of Kherson. So if for any reason there is a major breakthrough there, and we'll talk a little bit about, about the early advances of the Ukrainians in a second, um, it's going to mean that these Russian troops have got two options, uh, as is being pointed out to them, by the way, <laughs> by Zelensky and others, that is to surrender or try and swim the uh, Dnipro River. And that is not a, a happy circumstance in any uh, war. Uh, interestingly enough, we've talked a bit about Stalingrad before. It reminds me very much of the situation in Stalingrad, where the uh, then Russians, who of course were defending Stalingrad, um, were using the river as a, you know, a Nerplu ultra line. We we cannot uh, withdraw back from this, and that, and so in some senses that is a Russian tactic, isn't it? You you allow your troops to realize there is no uh, retreat from here. 
Yeah, it'd be a, a very Russian way of doing things. Um, one does wonder about the effect on morale. We reported uh, previously that the command and control centres had retreated east of the to the eastern bank of the Dnipro. So that that can't uh, actually boost morale if you're the troops left behind. Okay, it might stiffen your resolve, but it doesn't actually make you feel very fondly about the people who are issuing the orders. And of course, you know the situation is getting. Worse and worse, the three bridges, the three key bridges across the Dnipro have already been damaged to the point where they couldn't couldn't carry heavy traffic. Uh, pontoon bridges were, were were thrown across the river. They come under artillery fire, and uh, even the actual kit, you know, the kit, the ammunition, and everything that's getting to them is depleted because apparently um, there's been a very effective artillery strikes on. We hear ten ammunition dumps in the area, major ammunition dumps have been struck. Yeah, and there are fascinating reports um, of actual fighting in the city of Kherson. Now, uh, you can probably assume that's not regular Ukrainian troops, but it is almost certainly either special forces and or partisans who are operating behind the lines. As we we talked about last week, there's been increased evidence of this, uh, and they are attacking uh, the Russians effectively, uh, you know, from the rear. I mean, it's, it's one of the nightmare scenarios you've got in any military conflict where you've got the enemy effectively on your doorstep which is what they seem to have in Kherson at the moment at the same time four villages on the outskirts out at the same time four villages on the outskirts of Kherson seem to have been taken uh, by Ukrainian forces uh, and President Zelensky uh, in particularly ominous tones has warned Russians in the region to either flee or surrender if they want to live the actual quote was go home and if you are afraid to go home to Russia then such occupiers should give themselves up. And it's interesting that point about being afraid because, uh, of course, the consequences of fighting an authoritarian uh, army uh, such as the Russian army is at the moment, uh, not doing your job, uh, surrendering, giving yourself up, uh, retreating, are probably quite severe. They certainly were in the Second World War and you suspect they will be still today. Yeah, yeah, that's very... It's good messaging, as always, from... Zelensky, um, he sows these seeds, uh, which kind of paint the picture much more effectively of what life is like in Russia and what is the nature of the regime they're fighting uh, than, you know, sort of more kind of obvious uh, and sort of bombastic uh, rhetoric. So, as always, he's playing a blinder. Uh, but we still, you know, it's interesting that given that media are still in Russia, there's, there, there are still lots of Western media uh operations there and we still get you know we come back to this thing we don't really know what's going on um we're hearing reports that there are difficulties you always have to kind of take them with a a bit of a pinch of salt but um you know i, th- I think a lot of it is credible because of the it, it's just sort of common sense we, and we're getting reports of difficulties raising fresh troops um that they're now having to offer uh, bonuses to people to sign on. There's even stories of prisoners, even murderers, uh, being offered parole if they go off to the front lines. And uh, again, in this rather kind of, you know, haphazard, straw-clutching way, any images of Putin are subjected to uh, close scrutiny. And there was another one the other day, uh, you know, looking for signs of his health or ill health. There was a, a weird one the other day of Putin talking to the commander of the Russian National Guard, the Ros- Rosgvardia. Uh, that's the internal security force set up by Putin to ensure 
the safety of the regime from its internal enemies, i.e. its own people, um, potentially. <laughs> and uh, it's meant to be separate from the from the army, but some of the men, there are about 340,000 in the whole unit, some of them have been sent off to Ukraine where they're fighting and dying. Incidentally, they're the ones who are occupying the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant, which we'll be talking about a bit later. Anyway, in this clip, you've got uh, the commander who's called Viktor Solotov, who bears an uncanny resemblance, I couldn't help noticing, to Paul Whitehouse. <laughs> and he's sit seen sitting there talking to Putin and explaining to him the duties of the Rosgvardia, which is strange given that Putin actually set the thing up himself. And he's telling, he's reassuring the president that the Ukrainians have welcomed his men with open arms. And Putin's seen gripping the side of, of the desk, according to, I think, the rather optimistic analysis that uh, he's trying to control uh, shaking, uncontrollable shaking, um, resulting from Parkinson's disease. I don't know what to make of that. Wishful thinking, I think. Yeah, a wishful thinking. But it is it is absolutely remarkable, the Russian propaganda. I mean, it's almost as if they've said, you know, this is white and we're going to tell you it's black. And it's this sort of attempt to, to cast doubt on almost any information you're getting. Uh, therefore, nothing's entirely believable. Um, I thought it was very interesting, Colonel Kazan's observation, that Russian propaganda is deliberately stupid and as unbelievable as possible. It's not intended to convince, but to undermine, as I've suggested, the notion of objective truth. Well, that's the whole point of a podcast like this. It's our job to try and correct that balance. OK, well, Roger, that. Now, let's talk about uh, something very much in the news, Zaporizhia. Uh, this nuclear watchdog team is on its way to inspect the plant. It might even get uh, here today on the day that we're uh, making our podcast. It's not there yet as of this morning, and there are reports that it's being deliberately held up by the Russians who are shelling its route. Uh, they're kind of trying to, apparently trying to force the team to um, travel through Russian-controlled territory in Crimea and the Donbass region. Now, when they get there, they, they're going to make the first independent assessment of what how dangerous the situation really is, and perhaps um, start the... Well, it does seem, you know, all, all the information we're getting, the satellite imagery and all the rest of it, does suggest it's a very, very perilous situation there. At the moment, the fires are raging from uh, brush fires that have been caused by the shelling. There are There's clear signs of damage to the plant itself from the shelling. So um, what happens next uh, will be very a nail-biting passage, I think. Yeah, incredibly concerning. And uh, again, Colonel uh, Kazan talked about the potential environmental catastrophe of the war, not just uh, a, a potential nuclear catastrophe, but just the sheer effect this war is having on Ukraine, the enormous amount of money and, and of course, time it's going to take to clear the whole thing up. And that's if it stopped today. And of course, it, it, it you know, we, 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 suspect it will drag on for a fair bit longer we'll have to wait and see how this counteroffensive goes but it's it's absolutely heartbreaking to see the situation there to see the amount of ordnance that's being dropped over over the country of ukraine to see the destruction of property and of course lives you know let's not forget patrick at least five thousand ukrainian civilians have lost their lives and up to a thousand children just think about that for a moment um uh, and Colonel Kazan made the point, very moving and powerful point, I felt, that what we're paying in increased energy prices in the West, they're paying with blood. And just imagine your own family, your own children uh, being caught up in that. Yeah, it just, it really is. It's heartbreaking. And I think we, 
the longer it goes on, the further we move away from that central truth. Uh, and I think it's very important that we, we always bear that in mind. You know, he said, you know, it's killing. It's about killing, essentially. Uh, and OK, you know, the environment's getting uh, wrecked and, and you know, entire cities, like he said, like Mariupol's just kind of been wiped from the face of the earth, practically, apart from a, a pile of smoking rubble. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, it's, it's those human lives and those innocent lives that, that really break your heart. Um, now, on another subject, so these partisan operations that we've been going on about, um, they seem to have been uh, carrying on with a lot of success, uh, taking various collaborators are now being targeted and taken out. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Um, you know, I mentioned the danger, of course, to regular forces that partisans represent. Um, Germans had a lot of trouble with the partisans in the Second World War, and they dealt with them or at least attempted to deal with them in an utterly ruthless fashion but what we're seeing in ukraine is a, a series of spectacular hits uh, as you've suggested the taking out of collaborators i mean it's interesting there it was a big reaction in france at the end of the second world war against collaborators but not generally speaking while the war was underway and it's an incredibly brave thing to do to come out of hiding as a civilian and actually tackle one of the people that you think are, are shoring up the occupying regime. And what we've had in recent times are a number of successes. And the latest is Oleksiy Kovalov, who sounds to me like an ethnic Russian, who, uh, who was a senior agricultural official in the Kesson area, who was shot dead with a pump-action shotgun at his home on Sunday. And his wife or girlfriend, uh, the reports conflict, uh, was also killed. She was stabbed and later died of her wounds. I mean, we're not celebrating in any way these murders, but you do have to applaud the effectiveness of, of these partisans in carrying out these sort of behind-the-lines actions. Yeah, there was another, you know, from their point of view, a big success uh, the other day, I think it was 11th, 11th of August, when uh, Askar Laishev, who's an intelligence chief, I mean, he's, he's formerly with the Ukrainian Security Service, the SBU, uh, but he defected to the Russians some time ago, and he was caught in a car bomb which exploded while he was driving along the street. It was all captured on CCTV footage. You, you can look it up on uh, on YouTube. It is quite amazing. He's just driving along, then wham, the, the thing goes up in a fireball. You can see people scattering, people just you know, strolling along the pavement, suddenly realising what's going on, scattering. And amazingly, he actually uh, survived that attack and died in hospital a little later on. But it's impressive, you know, not just for the fact that they're that it's happening, that they've got the will to carry out these attacks. But but it's also these people are very, one would imagine, uh, have very uh, high levels of security, people, you know, detailed to protect them, and yet they're still getting killed. Now, you mentioned France, and, uh, you know, if you think about it, the, the French were under the, the jackboot, but it took them a long, long time before they actually started t turning on their own people uh, who were collaborating with the occupiers. Uh, and it wasn't really until uh, the war was almost over, or the war in France was almost over, until they started seeking to uh, ex extract any sort of revenge. And even then, a lot of the collaborators made it into peacetime and had flourishing careers thereafter. Yeah, but what we're beginning to see, particularly in Kherson itself, is the consequence of this partisan activity. I mean, there's a lovely bit on social media recently of Kirill Stremasov, who's the Russian-installed deputy leader of Kherson, um, actually broadcasting from Veronoj, uh, 
in Russia. That's 120 miles from the Ukrainian border. Uh, uh, now, he didn't admit he was he was broadcasting from there, doing his little uh, pep talk videos. But uh, social media followers noticed that in the background, there was definitely the very distinctive uh, cathedral in Veronezh. Uh, and what conclusion can you draw from that? Well, he's in fear of his own life. So while on the one hand, he's telling the Russian news agency TASS that everything is under control, he clearly doesn't believe that. Otherwise, why would he have left Kherson? Yeah, again, it falls into that category of, of um, you know, telling telling you black is white. Um, now, the Russian response to the uh, to the counteroffensive, you know, it gets a bit very hard to read. But, uh, they've been launching missile strikes on Kharkiv, uh, and they kill, which have killed at least nine people. One of the missiles hit an empty nursery school. So clearly, this is not really a you know serious military operation. It's a terror operation. It's meant to just. Uh, make people feel, you know, insecure, disrupt the life of the city, etc. So far, this hasn't worked anywhere it's it's been tried uh, in terms of firing back into Ukrainian territory proper in a way that's not part of a sort of attempt to actually capture that territory. So it's, it seems to be more uh, a kind of act of frustration rather than a serious operation of war. We also know, Patrick, don't we, from uh, the Second World War that an attempt to terrorise uh, a civilian population with the use of ordnance in the case of uh, the Second World War, that's Bomber Command, doesn't actually work. It was most effective when it was targeting military installations and industrial complexes. And as soon as it went into the area bombing idea that you can break German morale, that, that clearly didn't happen. So uh, not only is it lashing out in a kind of blind and, and brutal way, it's also ineffective. Uh, but clearly the lesson of history don't seem to have been learned. No, absolutely. Um, so uh, I, I, do, I, don't think, I don't think that will stop the Russians. I think we'll see this from time to time. Uh, now let's let's get back again to the to something we haven't gone into too much, but um, I've mentioned from time to time. That's sanctions. What effect uh, they are having on Russia? There's been completely contradictory interpretations. Uh, I think one is a kind of rather pessimistic view that the sanctions are doing nothing at all and that Russia is actually making more money from its oil and gas sales than it was before the war because of the um, price hike and it's found new customers in in China and India, etc. But then you get a completely opposite view, which I think is probably on, on the balance a bit more credible. Um, well, it, sure, they may be making this money, but it, it's not the whole picture by any means. And a recent World Bank report noted that the Russian economy is going to shrink by over 11% this year as uh, trade declines and inflation soars. Uh, it's on its way to 22% at the moment. And, uh, of course, down the road, uh, looking ahead a year or two, there are lots of questions about how the energy and manufacturing sectors will survive. So the picture seems to be sanctions may be taking their time, but they are working Yes, and uh, we we like to end on on a slightly happier note if we can. So just uh, it's worth pointing out that the first grain convoy, we spoke about them in previous episodes, but the first grain convoy from Ukraine on board the MV Brave Commander, which is carrying 23,000 tonnes of wheat, has finally reached Djibouti in East Africa. And it's going to continue on to Ethiopia, where uh, famine is uh, looming uh, and where, of course, that grain is desperately needed. So that's a a nice bit of good news to give you uh, at the end of this episode. Yeah, and a bit of sad news. 
which is, of course, the uh, death of Mikhail Gorbachev, whose reforms led to the fall of the Soviet Union. We'll both remember very clearly, Saul, he was seen by in the West as a, as a sort of saviour, this, this man who kind of, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd been brought up in the communist system, he'd worked his way up the party, etc. And, and he didn't seem a very likely uh, person to usher uh, Russia or the former Soviet Union into the realm of um, democracy and freedom. But there he was and he did it. And uh, he was greatly revered in the West, but of course, a prophet without honour in his own country. Yeah, I think I think opinions divided, even in Putin's Russia. Um, I, you know, I heard one commentator who was a former prime minister of Russia is now a critic of the Putin regime saying that he considers Gorbachev to be a great hero. He changed things for uh, the better, not just for, for the Soviet Union or all the countries, but then part of the Soviet Union and its greater empire, that is, of course, Eastern Europe, but also uh, the Western world as well. And uh, so when he was asked, well, of course, that's probably a minority uh, opinion. He said it might be a minority opinion, but we're still talking about at least 30 to 40 percent of, of Russians uh, revering Gorbachev rather than reviling him. So, yes, there are people like Putin who say that the end of the Soviet Union and, and that is the whole point of what's going on now was the biggest catastrophe to ever hit mankind. I'm not sure many people outside the old sort of communist cadres uh, entirely believe that. But of course, the propaganda in Russian Russia now has convinced a sizable chunk of the population, particularly the older uh, guard, uh, that they have a right to take back some of the territory that they've lost. You know, this return to empire, we discussed it last week, it's utterly ludicrous to to think that you can throw your weight around in that way. Uh, and that is why the, the course and uh, a result of this war is so vital. Great. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. So please do join us next week when we'll be talking uh, to another key analyst or participant in the war and discussing the latest news. Goodbye. Goodbye.